So here we are where Moses is literally at the edge of the promised land, and this is his last day. He is going to die. The Lord has told him so much. And so he's giving his farewell sermon to the people he's led for these 40 years. And he, uh, he shares with them, chapter 32 is a song. It's a psalm, if you will. Psalms are just scriptures set to music. And uh, here's a taste of what it could have been like. And I'm sure this is more of an American version of this, but just think maybe if they had sung it more in a Hebrew, Semitic-sounding way. So imagine Moses standing between two hillsides, and there's like one and a half million people. And he's in this like natural amphitheater, and he's teaching all these people this song. And this became like the national anthem of Israel, and they sang this all the time. And in fact, so then they're living in the land, they're learning this song, and the song is actually predicting how they're going to stray away from God. And how to react when they have strayed, how to return to the Lord. And so imagine you're a little child and you've grown up learning this song in the promised land. You hear these stories of Egypt, you hear the stories of slavery, and you're singing this song. And then one day you hear the sound of chariots and horses storming in and people screaming and running for their lives. And someone comes up and captures you and chains you. And, dra and kills your mom and dad and kills all kinds of people, but then takes all the young people and carries them off to Babylon and makes you slaves. And then one day you're working in the field as a slave and a bunch of Jews all of a sudden start singing this song. Think about that. And they talk about it, the goodness of God and how he's fair and he's just as they're slaves. But then they learned a lesson from the song is, it's, it's our fault. We turned our backs on God, but he's just, and he will return, and he'll return us. So think about that as we read through the passage. This chapter, we're gonna, I'm going to cover the whole chapter from a, a helicopter view. We're only going to read the first uh, 18, 19 verses. Um, not going to read the whole chapter, but as a homework assignment, read the whole thing, okay? But I'm going to give you an overview of it today. So I'm going to have you read every other slide with me. I'll read the first slide, you read the next. So verse 1 says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. And everybody together on this slide. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without inequity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Verse 6 together. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. He found in him a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, 
bearing them on its pistons. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with very finest of the wheat, and you drank from foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, and you grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that had never, they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. This is God's word. Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand what we're hearing today. Give us ears to hear, open hearts, open minds. Be with me so I can explain it and make the passage clear so that the seed of the word of God is planted deep in our hearts so it bears much fruit to your glory. We need your help this morning to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... uh, how many of you remember in driver's ed class, where did they say to put your hands? Ten and two. And now we know that that's wrong. <laughs> and here's why it's wrong. Because if your hands are at ten and two and an airbag goes off, you hit yourself in the face with two fists and you do further damage. So now they put, say put your hands at three and nine so that your hands go this way and you separate both shoulders. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know how that works. But anyway, um, but it's funny how we're taught things formally a certain way but nobody drives that way, <laughs> you know. If you look at the next picture there, um, what we actually do is we, we're, we're basically seven and t- cell phone. Seven and cell phone is how we're driving now, you know. Or maybe worse, eight and french fries, you know. That's how we're really driving. And what, what we're taught to do that's, that is right and is safe and what we really do in actual life doesn't always resemble it. And if that's not a good picture of Deuteronomy, I'm not sure what is. Deuteronomy is here's how you should live life and then we do seven and cell phone. You know, we do it totally different than what God says. And then we wonder why we get into troubles and accidents in our life. Keep going. So there's, there's seven points this morning to this chapter. Big surprise, number seven. But, uh, and it's, it's all about how great God is. That's the bottom line. If you get nothing else out of this morning, I want you to walk away with the idea that God is awesome. God is great. First thing is God the rock. Not talking about the movie star. He's lame compared to God. God is the rock. Number two, God our father. Number three, God like an eagle. That should be an eagle. My fault, sorry. Number four, God is a jealous God. Number five, God of compassion. Number six, God an avenging warrior. And autocorrect is killing me here. Number seven, God who loves Moses. And what's interesting about that, there's not a real clear chiastic structure, and I won't review that whole thing again, but if if you know about the chiastic structure, the topics are arranged that way, though. The language may not be, but the topics are. And, of course, what is dead smack in the middle of this structure? Okay, next slide, you'll see that God is a jealous God. And not only do you get that from the way it's laid out, but look how many verses are dedicated to that. So just by the sheer numbers of verses talking about God being a jealous God... 
I think it's pretty clear that we can take a hint from Moses that that is his main message. And there probably isn't a person in this room, maybe very few of you, who haven't ever felt true jealousy. And there's a big difference between envy and jealousy. Um, Oprah Winfrey grew up in church singing in a choir, but she walked away from Christianity because she read that in the Bible that God is a jealous God. And she thought being jealous is so petty, it's so juvenile. If God's that way, then I don't need him. But she didn't understand what the Bible's saying. Okay? So, you know, if a man loves his wife and he adores her and he's good to her, but she goes off and has affairs with other men, he would be insane not to be jealous, right? Because jealousy is wanting what is yours. Envy is wanting what belongs to somebody else. Envy is sinful. Jealousy is normal. So for God to love you, to give everything for you, to lay down his own life for you and to love you and cherish you and want to be in a romantic relationship with you and for us as believers, the children of God, to go off into the world and have affairs with all that the world offers, it is a normal, in fact, it is a divine response to be jealous. So that's, that's the main point. So we're going to start off with here, God the rock. Next slide. So it talks about him being the rock, and his work is perfect. And that is so hard to believe sometimes when we're going through mess, when life is totally whacked, and we're going through pain, and all kinds of things are going wrong. We lose our job. We may be on the verge of losing our house or losing our marriage. And all these things are going on. And we're like, but how can his work be perfect? It's because we claim, Romans 8, 28, that God works to get all things together for his good. That you become stronger when life becomes harder. And we all want to skip the hard stuff. But let me tell you, it is the pain that puts you on your knees. It's the sorrow that makes you cry out to God. And it's the times when you're not sure where it's going to come from that you finally find out where it all comes from. And so we, don't, we need to trust God that his way is perfect. That, and so think about a Jew who's now been taken away into captivity and they're being treated badly and yet they say his work is perfect. His work is perfect. I don't understand how, but his work is perfect. And all his ways are justice. He's never unfair. We can't accuse God of being unfair. In fact, he is a God of faithfulness. He will always keep his promises to us. He will never be unfair. With, he'll never sin against us with iniquity. He's just. He's upright. And so it's all about trusting in the hardest of times that God is good. Next slide. But in spite of God's goodness, his justice, his faithfulness, Jeshurun, which was like a nickname for Israel, it's almost like, you know, you call your, your husband or your wife Bay, or, you, you know, you say boo-boo or whatever your nickname is. The nickname for Israel was Jeshurun. I don't totally understand what that means. While God's blessing them, what did they do? They grew fat, and they kicked against everything. They were just stout and sleek, and it's basically describing an animal that is not wanting to be tamed, an animal that's spoiled rotten and won't do what it's supposed to do. And what did they do? They forsook the God who made them. And even worse, they scoffed at the rock. And you, I know people like this, and you do too. And maybe you've been one of them, where not only do you walk away from God, where you're questioning God, but you're actually not starting to scoff or, or accuse God of being unfair, and he was the rock of your salvation. 
Next slide. It says, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the, the God who gave you birth. You moms can relate to this, right? You, know, you, you see your eight or nine-year-old misbehaving and being ungrateful and unthankful and unappreciative of all you've done for them, and you're like, I brought you this into this world. I can take you out. <laughs> you know, I carried you in my body for nine months. I've got the, the stretch marks to prove it, okay? I, I went through lots of back pain. I was vomiting at night. I was sick. I was all kinds of problems. And then I went through intense labor and pain giving birth to you. And this is the thanks you give me? And God uses this birth picture because we do this to God all the time. God, in every sense, has given life to us even more so, your mom could have died giving birth to you. Your Savior did die giving new birth to you, giving life to you. And, you know, it, we're, we've learned over the few weeks that where there's repetition, there's what? Revelation. Revelation. When God repeats something over and over again, he wants you to say, hey, I'm trying to tell you something here. And you'll see this phrase, the rock, five times in this chapter. Next, please. So the next one is God our Father. God our Father. He said, do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Why don't you tell us what you really think? But they obviously really are this way. He says, is not your Father who created you, who made you, isn't he the one that established you? Yes, your mom gave birth to you, but your heavenly Father, and again, the metaphors don't mix very well, but in a way we can understand it, your God, God, your Father helped give birth to you in the sense that he you were conceived, and he made you what you are. He got you established, which means he, he gave you a job. He gave you a home. He got you all set up, and this is the way you repay. So you can see your mom and dad both giving you this speech, right? And, let me, and what's so interesting is when the disciples asked Jesus to teach us to pray, he says, pray like this, our what? Our Father. And, it, you know, I realize you can say, God, we thank you, and you can pray to God, but that'd be like me talking to Rick and say, hey, man, would you help me with this? Man, thank you. Man is what he is. Rick is who he is. And God wants your prayers to be personal. So don't just talk to him about what he is. He's God. He is a God. He is the God. But he wants you to call him by an intimate name, and that is Father. And so that doesn't mean you can't ever pray to Jesus, pray to the Holy Spirit. But the primary way, based on the model of Jesus, is to call him your father. And let me just say right on the outset, there's many in this room, and many of you watch online, that when I say the word father, you're like, jerk, right? Or worse. <laughs> many, of you, many of you did not have a great experience with the father. My father wasn't the worst in the world, but he also wasn't the best in the world. But I cannot, and I will not, and I choose not to hold that against my Heavenly Father. The reason you are so disappointed into your, with your earthly father, for many of you, is because you know deep down inside what a true father should be like. So don't hold against God how your earthly father failed you. Let that make you long for a right kind of father even more than ever. Next slide. So remember the days of old. And see, that's what God calls everyone to do. Every one of us can look back to days when God was good to us. And if you can't, then maybe you don't know Christ as Savior, or maybe you have a bad memory, or I don't know, there's all kinds of issues. But in general, most people can remember times when God was good to us, and we need to do that. You know, we don't look at the past for bad things, you know, but we do look back to be thankful for things. And consider the years of many generations. 
Ask your father. Now think about this. Many generations. Did you know there's nothing on planet Earth that has lasted more than 300 years, 400 years, other than Christianity? The United States isn't that old. Countries have changed governments. Can you name one corporation that's been around for more than 300 years? You can't. Everything that man sets up, the Roman Empire falls. The Greek Empire falls. The Babylonian Empire falls. The Ming Dynasty in China falls. Everything that they say is all powerful and we'll be here forever, they've all fallen. Believers in the true God of the Bible, though, have been around all the history because that's the one thing. And so many generations of people, and, they, and go and ask your earthly father, and he will show you. Ask your elders. In fact, if you can't ask your father, just ask other older adults all the things. He's saying basically, hey, can you tell me what happened in the wilderness? Oh, yeah, it was amazing. We were hungry, and bread came down from heaven called manna. We were ungrateful for that, so we cried out for meat, and quail just showed up all over the place and we didn't have water and Moses spoke to the rock and water gushed forth I mean we just saw miracle after miracle after miracle and if you have a godly grandma or grandpa or somebody older than you that loves Jesus ask them to tell you the blessings of God it's good for you to hear that it's good for your kids to hear that go to the next slide please And when the most high gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind now there's what this is referring to, we're not exactly sure. I believe it's probably Babylon, I mean, the Tower of Babel, I'm sorry, the Tower of Babel, when he divided the nations and he divided their languages. Some people take it back to the 70 that Moses had established and they divided up into mankind. And there's, there's even, if you're wanting into some really deep theology, just Google divine counsel, okay? I won't get into it right now because I can't even begin to comprehend it myself, but the sons of God may be are the angels and how God has divided the earth up and he has archangels in charge of different regions of the earth. But that gets into some pretty heavy stuff right there. Keep going there. Um, so the next one is God is like an eagle. Not an eagle, like an eagle. So it says like an eagle, he stirs up its nest. Eagles do an amazing thing. Mom and dad, if you study eagles at all, are a great team. First of all, male and female uh, eagles mate for life. They are monogamous. They are totally loyal to each other. And they both play a powerful role in, in the nesting. And they work together to build the nest. And just watch an eagle's nest. Some eagle's nests can be like 12 feet in radius. They're, they can be humongous. And they work really hard with some pretty large branches to put together. Then they fill it in with all kinds of stuff to make it make a safe nest so that predators can't get to it. It's in a really high place that so other birds and vultures can't get to them. And they work really hard to make this nest. And then they, they, they hatch the eggs. And then they, the eggs, when they do hatch, they feed them. And they take turns feeding them and protecting the nest. And then they do something really bizarre. They stir up their nest, which means not just the, the, the eaglets that are in the nest, but they actually will dismantle the nest. They will start taking it apart with their claws and their talons. And the baby bird's are like, what? What are you doing? I love my nest. Why are you taking my nest apart? And they get them to where it's, it's all down to where they can barely stand around. And then when they know somehow they, God has created them, but instinctively they know when their chick is ready to fly. And they will nudge them and push them out of the nest. And this eaglet is flopping and flailing like 300 feet down. And the mom and dad are circling them as they're flailing. And all of a sudden, halfway down, they go, 
oh, wow, I can do this. And then there's some that actually don't, and the eagle come right out, and they'll land right on their back. And they'll take them right about their next nest, let them catch their breath, and knock them out again. And they literally stir. And can you imagine if you're an eagle and you've never flown? All you've known is mom and dad are awesome. They feed me, and I love my nest. And all of a sudden, their nest is falling apart, and mom and dad are hitting me. Like, what are you hitting me for? What? Ah, and they're falling down. You know, and you know what? God does that to us. We are like, I, I love my home. I love my job. Everything is comfortable. Everything is cozy. I like my thing. Wait, what, what? What are you doing in my home, God? What are you doing with my job? What are you doing to my marriage? And God's stirring it all up. And, say, and next thing you know, you're falling 500 feet free fall, and you're like, what? But then all of a sudden, you learn how to fly something you've never done before. And let me tell you something. Until you go through some of those hard times, you'll never experience flight. And I'm talking about spiritual flight. And God is an eagle who loves you enough to stir up his nest and to, to kick you out. So don't pray for comfort. Don't pray for a better cushy job. I'm not saying God won't give you those things. I'm saying you pray his will be done. And if that means a hard job that sometimes you hate, but you can be a light in a dark place, God's will be done. Um, and what's interesting, he says here that, that uh, go back to the slide for me if you don't mind. He says he flutters over them, and again, he flying circle around while they're falling, and then he catches them, and he bears them on pinions. In other words, sometimes he actually even grabs them with the claws, which are a little bit short, like, hey, mom, that hurts. <laughs> you know, but it's the very thing that he does. And then in the Lord, it was the Lord alone that guided them. There was nobody else helping them through this process. And then go to the next slide. No foreign God was with them. And you know what? We all have substitutes for God. Sometimes it's our spouse until our spouse fails us miserably. And we looked up to them so much and we built our world around them. And then all of a sudden it falls apart. Sometimes it's our job. Sometimes it's our degree. And we put our self-identity, who we are, why we are success, and why we are somebody in something else. And that something else isn't what got you where you are. But we forget that lesson. Go to the next slide for me. Um, the Lord alone guided you. And let's just say no friends were with you to get you to where you are today. No degree got you to where you are today. You fill in the blank. We sometimes give credit to something else to make us to, to who we are, or what we are, and why our life is meaningful. But let me tell you, it, it's really, it's God. There's no other God that's with you. Next slide. The next thing, the, and we get to our middle and main point. God is a jealous God. So let me ask you a question. Is jealousy, the true biblical kind of jealousy, is jealousy a sin? No, thank you. It's envy, it's a sin. Now people, in modern English, we interchange those words, and that's unfortunate because words should mean things. Next slide. They stirred him. So watch this. The tables are turned. God stirs you up for your good, but now they're trying to stir God up and make him jealous. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, plural. You see, we seldom and rarely have one God that's instead of our true God, Jesus. We usually have gods because none of them are good enough to do it all alone. Like you may have a great job, but that great job is not enough. It's the car the job buys, and maybe that will be enough. But then you get bored with the car, so then it's the house the job buys. And so it's like we have to pile up several gods just to compete with one God. You see how that works? And it says, we, and there's all kinds of strange abominations. And so these strange gods result in strange abominations 
because we're doing sinful things to get what we want, and we need to stock up a whole bunch of God just to compete with one God, and even that doesn't work. And so what does that end up doing? We not only stir him, we provoke him. Okay? We're basically rubbing it in his face, saying, look, God, look what I have. And we're thanking God for the very thing that occupies more time than he gets. Does that make sense? We're so passionate. Like we could, let me use an illustration. We could say, oh, thank you, God, for these tickets behind home plate for the Astros playoff game. Oh, yes, I am so thankful for these tickets. Thank you, God. And there's nothing wrong with home plate tickets at an Astro game. But when you're more thrilled about the Astros than you are about Jesus, there's something wrong. And imagine how it would make him feel if you are thanking him for the very thing that you love more than him. That's what Israel did. Next, please. They sacrificed the demons that were no gods. Okay, so is Buddha a real god? No. The Hindus have over 100,000 gods. Are any of them real? No. They're made out of wood. They're made out of... Gold, silver, all kinds of things. But here's what is real. And I could spend a lot of time on this, but I don't have time today. Behind every false god in our world, whether it be Dagon or Baal of their ancient times, or Buddha or uh, any god you want to name today around the world, behind them what is real is a demon. There is a demon god behind all these other world religions. So anybody who says to you that there's many roads to God and you know, the Muslim and the Buddhist and the, and, and the Hindu and the Christian, they're all worshiping the same God. That is absolutely not true. The other religions are not just wrong, and they're not just intellectually inaccurate. They're not just historically inaccurate. They are demonic. And that's what's going on in this situation. And it says, and what's interesting is they have new gods. This generation that's in the promised land are serving new gods that their parents had never even heard of in Egypt or in the wilderness. And you know what? That's what's true of our society today. There's always going to be a new God, a new God. Oh, Facebook, it's Instagram. No, Instagram, no, it's Snapchat. You know, we always move on to something new, something new, and our, parent, and our kids always look at our parents and say, oh, you're old-fashioned. Everybody's into this. Well, all it is is the newest God, just recreated and repackaged, but it's the same thing over and over and over again. There's nothing new under the sun, but it always gets packaged as a new God. Next slide. So here's the key. The reason he says you walked away from God is you were unmindful. Unmindful. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Next, please. The opposite of love is apathy. Many people will say hate, and that's not true. You see, if let's just say you went through a divorce and you literally like hate each other, okay? And they, you verbalize it, you know, maybe in front of the kids and whatever, and, and, and just all kinds of trading, all kinds of nasty texts or whatever. The reason there's that, that is because there's still some feeling there, and you hate what they've done, what each other's done to the marriage. But the true opposite would be like, I don't really care about you anymore. I don't, I don't need you. I don't, I don't even think about you. <laughs> I'm so glad you're out of my life. And I'm not saying that in a hateful way. Great, I hope you go remarry. I hope you're fine, whatever. That is more hurtful than someone who hates you and wishes that it could all be back together again. And that, that's what really hurts God. It's not that we're like, oh, I hate you, God. Don't feel sorry for all the atheists on YouTube, okay? They're probably wrestling with God more than some of us are. 
And the reason they're so, oh, I hate God, I hate you stupid Christians, this is so dumb, blah, blah, is because deep down inside, it's eating them up. I'm like, why are you so mad at a God who doesn't exist? How does that make any sense? And why aren't you on some rant about Buddha? Why are they only on a rant about Jesus Christ? It's because they know deep down inside he's the only true one. It's the people who just go through life on TikTok like nothing matters but what their next happy experience is. And they don't think about God at all. That's the people who are farthest from God. They're not even thinking about God. Their, their, their mind is not thinking about it. Unmindful. Next slide, please. So, you see, there's a big difference between wrestling with God and ignoring God. You know, some people struggle and their lifestyle is maybe not what it should be, but God, if you had done this for me, I wouldn't be doing this over here. And they're wrestling with God. And let me tell you something. Keep wrestling. It's a good thing. It's when you stop wrestling and you're like, life is great. I'm fine. Oh, God? Who's? No, I mean, you, that's good for you. It's not good for me. I don't, I'm, I'm, my life is great. That's where you're in the most dangerous situation, where you're no longer wrestling like Jacob wrestled. Remember Jacob wrestled with God all night? And it wasn't like it was even close. It was like, Jesus, like, get off of me, but you just get off of me. And then finally Jesus says, touches his thigh, just touches, just touches it. And now all of a sudden he's paralyzed. He just paralyzes his leg. And when his leg finally recovers, he limps for the rest of his life. But you know what? That limp became a blessing because it reminded him every day of when he wrestled with God and God blessed him. Whole nother story. Read about it maybe later today. Next slide. So you were unmindful. You weren't even stopping to think about God. And that's the key to Christian life is that you're thinking about God all day long. You don't have to pray all day long. You don't have to do this all day long. Okay? You don't have to stop five times a day or three times a day. The Bible says pray without ceasing. It's like you're having this ongoing conversation with Jesus because you know he's right there. You get in the car with Jesus. You drive to work with Jesus. You get to work with Jesus. He helps you through your work with Jesus. You eat lunch with Jesus. You thank him for his food. You literally, and I'm not trying to sound cheesy or hokey about this, you literally are aware, mindful of his presence all day long. Next, please. Psalm 88, verse 4 says, What is man that you're mindful of him? In other words, here we're thinking about, we should be thinking about God, and we don't. And God has no reason to think about us, and yet he does. He said, And the Son of Man, that you even care for him. Next, please. See, here's the irony God is the most loving, amazing, powerful person in the universe. And we think about him very little compared to everything else in our life. But, next slide, we are little more than dust, and yet God thinks loving thinks thoughts about us constantly. Did you know that? That God is thinking about you all day long. Even while you're sleeping, he's still awake thinking thoughts about you. And it's not like, oh, Patrick, you're such an idiot. Can't wait till you wake up till I can make your life miserable. It's not that at all. It's, man, I love Patrick. And, man, I love that Patrick loves me. And I can't wait till Patrick wakes up so I can speak to him through my word. I can't wait till he goes through what I have for him tomorrow. He's really going to be surprised. <laughs> and, and maybe, and I'm, I'm really excited about having my angels minister to him to get him ready for what's about to come. And that God is thinking about you constantly. You say, Gary, where did you get that from? I'm glad you asked. Next slide. Psalm 40, verse 5 says, you have multiplied 
In other words, exponentially, O oh Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. You say, well, multiply, is it just four times four, 16? God has 16 thoughts about us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. God has so many thoughts about you and so many plans for you, you can't even begin to talk about them all. More than you have for yourself. And by the way, better plans than you have for yourself. So God, 24-7, is thinking wonderful thoughts about you. Is there anybody else on planet Earth that's doing that? Yes, your wife might be amazing. Your husband might be a great guy. But I guarantee you, their thoughts towards you are not like this. You know, what's one of the best things, guys, you can do, this is free, okay, is in the middle of the day, text your wife and say, hey, just thinking about you, honey. Make her day, okay? But how much more will it make our day to know that God is thinking about us constantly? Next slide, please. So you want to know the key to enduring through difficult times? So you, you've, some of you have gone through some difficult times. Some of you are in the middle of difficult times. And some of you are about to be in difficult times, okay? And maybe it's all three, okay? You, you want to know the key, okay? This isn't just Gary's advice. This is what the scripture says. Watch this. Next slide. 1 Peter 2.19. For this is a gracious thing. Here's a gift. God's saying, hey, here's a freebie. Gift of grace here. When mindful of God... Everybody say that with me. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. You know how you get through suffering? You know how to get through sorrow? And you know how you get through it all when it's not even fair? It's unjustly. You didn't even deserve it, and you're going through it. You are mindful of God. Just think about God the whole way through. Think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now that have lost their husbands, that their children have been taken away, maybe they're next. What are they thinking of? They're thinking of God. And they're even singing this Psalm 32, Deuteronomy 32. God is good. God is just. I don't understand it all, but this is how I'm going to make it through because in the end, what's the worst thing they can do? They take my head off, I go straight to be with Jesus. That's what they're thinking about. They're mindful of God's will. That's why they are able to be bolder than we are, even though we're the ones living in the freedom. Next slide. So they have made me jealous with what is really no God, okay? They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. And in Hebrew, this is really hard to translate into English, okay? Uh, one Bible commentary said it this way. Next slide. Um, they made me jealous with a no God, a no God, okay? Or, and, and I'm going to make them jealous with a no people. And if you want to put it even in more contemporary English, is. um... You made me jealous with a synthetic God. I'm going to make you jealous with a synthetic or fake person. So basically, when they're carried off into captivity, the people who are the evil people are, are enjoying the promised land, and they're being blessed, and everything like this. And the, the Israelites are looking at them going, God, why are you being good to them? God's like, hey, how's it feel? How's it feel to have the shoe on the other foot now? I'm blessing the Gentiles. Like crazy. They're becoming empires when you should have been the empire. But you're the one to turn your back on me. So let's just see how it feels. And that's what God's doing in this situation. Next slide. So next point, God of compassion. You know, it sounds like all oh, that's pretty harsh, but at the same time, God's saying, but I'm still loving. Next slide. For the Lord will vindicate his people. That, see, that seems really weird. Usually vindication comes from when you get accused falsely 
and, you, and everybody thinks you're guilty, and someone comes in and does an investigation and says, no, 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 actually they didn't do it, and I'm going to prove it. I'm going to vindicate them. But here these people deserve to be wrong, but yet he says, you know what, I'm still going to justify you. I'm still going to make you right. How does he do that? Because he takes their punishment upon himself through Jesus Christ. But that's a whole other lesson. He says, and I'm going to have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. When does God show compassion on you? He does it all the time. But when does he especially do it? When you're at the end of your rope. When you realize, God, I can't do this. Great, thank you. You couldn't do it a year ago, but you just thought you could. And now you realize what's really been true all along, that you can't do this on your own. That's, the, that's what bad times do for us, is they make us desperate for God, but that's the way we should be all the time. I don't, you, you, if you are a multimillionaire, and, you're, you're, and you have the best spouse in the world, and your kids are perfect, did you know you still should be desperate for God? You still should be realizing, but I'm still going to be empty if you're not in the center of it all. Like Nathan challenged us early, in the, that, that we should be in the center, and just like David prayed, God would be the center of it all. Next slide. We ought to sing that song sometime soon. There's a few songs. So God shows his greatest compassion when our power is gone. And we admit that we're helpless. And that's what we should be admitting every day. Next. Romans 5, 6. So when we, when we were yet without strength, and the strength here is talking about the ability to save yourself. And who is able to save themselves? Nobody. And yet, I can't repeat this enough. Every religion in the world is, you be strong, you be good, you do these things, God will save you. And Christianity is the only one, true biblical Christianity, says you can't do it, you can't do it, but Jesus did it all. When he stretched out his arms on the cross and he said, it is finished, he said everything to, be, to save your soul was done right here and now. And now if you choose to be good, it's because you love me. It's because you're living a life of thankfulness towards him. And so therefore, if you're not choosing to live right, guess what? You're either not saved or you're not thankful that you're saved. It's one of the two. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? That's every single one of us. Next, please. So this was an unfortunate cycle of Israel's unfaithfulness. It happened over and over again. Keep going through this as I read. So God chooses and loves Israel, right? Israel loves the other gods of the other nations instead, God uses those nations to punish them. And then God gets revenge on the nations because they mistreated Israel. Stay with me here, okay? And then Israel goes, oh, God, we're sorry, we're sorry. We, we got ourselves in this mess. We repent. We love you again. And so what does God do? He forgives and he blesses them. And they go through this over and over and over again. And you read the book of Judges, it really could be called the cycles. And it, it just basically does this over and over and over again. Okay, now it's basically this whole thing, wash, rinse, repeat over and over again. Now, some of you may look at this and say, wait a minute, God used Assyria to punish Israel, and then God turns around and punishes Assyria for doing what he asked them to do. Yeah, that's exactly what it does. And you say, but that doesn't seem really, really fair. Well, let me explain it like this. Go to the next slide. So, is that unfair? Keep going. Let me just put it this way. Let's say a husband, again, is married to a wife. And I'm going to use the, hu the husband-wife thing because that's the way the Bible uses it. It could easily be switched where the husband's unfaithful, and, and it happens a lot too. But in this situation, to be parallel to the Bible, a husband really loves his wife. He treats her well. 
but she just is always see all of her friends having fun out there, and she sees other guys that are cute and whatever, so she starts sneaking out, and she starts going out, and next thing you know, she's not even coming home, and she's staying gone, and, and she's staying with this guy, and next thing you know, he's, he treats her real nice at first, but then he starts treating her badly, then he starts pimping her out and all that stuff, and then he starts beating her, and word gets back to the husband, and the husband, he doesn't force her to come home, he, does, he, let, he lets all that happen knowing that, hey, it's your choice. I love you. I'm here if you decide to come home. But all that's going on. Is he wrong so far? No. But then he gets word that the pimp is beating her. And he goes down there and he kicks in the door. And he goes all Rambo on the guy. And he just starts pounding him. You're not going to treat my wife that way. And he just starts beating the guy and says, you'd never see her again. Don't you come within two miles of my house. He picks her up. Go to the next slide. And he carries her home. He puts her in the bathtub. He washes her wounds. He feeds her. He clothes her. He lays her down in the bed and he holds her. Now, in that story, was he wrong for beating up the pimp? No. He knew the pimp would do it. He even allowed the pimp to do it because that was her choice. But he only let it go so far. And this is, by the way, the story of the book of Hosea. Where God... Ask a guy named Hosea, Hosea, hey, you know what? You're ready to get married. Hosea's like, great, I'm excited about being married. I'm ready to be married. Okay, I have the perfect girl for you. Oh, really great. Who is she? Is she a godly woman? She really is good looking, loves Jesus? Um, no, not exactly. I want you to go marry this girl, and she doesn't even have a good name. Her name is Gomer. She's named after a 1970s sitcom, and uh, it was a really goofy name, and, and maybe she's, she is kind of pretty, but that's it. <laughs> she's a prostitute. She, she's not a good lady at all. You want me to marry her? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, God, I guess you know what you're doing. And he goes and gets Gomer, and he marries her. And at first, she's good with it all, and they have some kids. But then they have some more kids. And one of their kids' name is not my child, <laughs> to tell you what's happening. And then she finally she goes off, and she goes through the exact same story that, that I just described to you. And God goes down, and, and uh, Hosea goes down, and she's being auctioned off. And usually when there's an auction of women, they're naked. So her eyes are down. She's, she's ashamed. She's embarrassed. And somebody's like, hey, who will give me 20 denarius for this woman? And a guy goes, I'll give you 20. Someone else goes, 22. And then it's kind of silent for a while. And someone goes, 30. And she's like, and looks up. And there's Hosea bidding for his wife. Now watch this. He's paying a price for what is already his. Are you with me? Jesus created you, and then he paid the price to buy you back. And then someone says, uh, 32. And, and Jose goes, 50. And they're like, what? She's pretty, but she's not that pretty. And then he takes her home, and he loves her. And this is a, an amazing story better script than anything in Hollywood would ever write. But this is us. This is us. When we wake up in the morning and we grab our phone and we go to something else besides his word. I need to be entertained. I don't need time with God. I need to be entertained. Oh, I got 45 likes. Well, that's cool. Or, you know, what do we got to do tonight? I don't know. I'm kind of bored. And we always seek everything and anything else but God. And God's like, hey, I'm over here. Give me a hug. What? 
And we're like, no, God, I, not right now. I've got other things going on. If you're too busy for God, you're too busy, right? Amen? Next slide. So we come down to the same choice Moses is presenting over and over and over again. Will you obey and be blessed, or will you disobey and suffer the curse? And you say, man, God, I, I try. I try, but I keep going through the wrong door. I keep choosing the wrong thing. Let me give you something that Moses is giving us here this morning to help you. Keep going. You see, the true choice is different. The way you choose the right door is not to focus on what's behind the door. Don't focus on what's behind the door, but focus on, next slide, who is behind the door. Who is behind the door? You see, obedience, you know who's behind the door? Jesus is. And you will go through that door, no matter how hard it is, no matter what the obedience requires, because the person on the other side loves you more than anybody else does. Or you can go through the door of disobedience because there's things there, there's stuff there, but ultimately the only, thing that, the only person that's in there is you. And once again, you're by yourself. And you're lonely. And that's really what hell is. Hell is the loneliest place in the universe. And that's the, that's the great pain of it all. Yes, I believe there's literal fire and brimstone, but I believe the ultimate thing is you will never see anybody ever again, especially God. You will never talk to anybody ever again, especially God. You will never hug or hold hands with anybody ever again. You will be by yourself because that's what you're choosing. I don't need God. I want to do this by myself. And God says, oh, you're not going to pray your will be done. You're going to pray, so I'm going to give you your will be done. You want to be by yourself? How about being by yourself for all eternity? But if you're a Christian, you will choose what's right because it's not the blessing God's going to give you, but that you get God himself. You get to have a close relationship with Jesus. That's how you choose the right door. Next slide, please. So there's God the rock, God our Father, God like an eagle, God being a jealous God, God of compassion, and then quickly these last two, God, number six, God an avenging warrior. God an avenging warrior. Keep going. So verse 41 says, if I wet my glittering sword, so God... God has an amazing sword, and it, it, it's very shiny. It glistens, you know, and he, and, he, and, and he pulls it out, and he holds judgment, and he says, and I will render vengeance, and you see that word revenge or vengeance several times, to my enemies, and I will reward them that hate me. So this is the violent picture of God that we don't like, but th let me ask you, women, if someone treats you wrong and is like trying to sexually assault you, and your husband comes in and just spanks him good, like knocks him to the ground and just beats him, are you going, oh, you're such a violent husband. I just don't think I love him. You are like, please, thank you. Thank you for standing up for me and knocking him down. That's the way God is, and we, why we would not want God to be the same way. Next verse. He says, rejoice, and that's really weird. God is going to avenge the blood. So Assyria and Babylon, who take the Israelites into captivity, Treat Israel bad, God takes vengeance on them, and we're supposed to rejoice in it. But the rejoicing is in that justice is being met. He will avenge the blood of his servants. So he's going out there and he's taking care of the pimp in the story. Next slide. So, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? And you hear, how many of you have heard that question before? Your friends will ask, How can a loving God send anyone to hell? Here, let me give you an answer that 
I don't know how anybody could see this otherwise. Keep going through the slides here. So right now in Afghanistan, women and children are being killed over and over again. And some of these pictures are leaking out. And I could show you worse pictures. Over and over again, people are, being, are molesting children and killing little girls and kidnapping them like this guy here, 15 different girls. Stalin, if you know your history at all, we talk about Hitler all the time. Stalin killed 32 million of his own people. Killed anybody who disagreed with him politically, he killed them. He canceled them. See where we're going? Okay. And then you got this guy, Jeffrey Epstein, who kidnaps women all around the world, transports them to his island, makes them sex slaves, and our politicians, many of whom are still in Washington, D.C. right now, and Hollywood movie stars, and executives of ABC, NBC, and NBC, they fly on Jeffrey Epstein's private jet to go have pleasure for a week on the best vacation they thought ever with all these women who are sex slaves. And then Jeffrey Epstein gets caught. And all the politicians are like, ooh, man, he's fixing to tell everybody. And then Jeffrey Epstein mysteriously commits suicide in jail while he's being watched by guards. Come on, man. And you, no, you look at all these evil people right here. And you say that they get to do all they want, and then they die, and there's, there's no hell. They're dead. That's it. Man, if that was true, then why don't we all go, go do all the evil we want to do? Just abuse and treat whoever we want. Let's step on everybody to get rich. Let's party till it's, it, every, everything just happens the way we want. And then we can kill ourselves. Life is over. Are you telling me that's the way it is? That's what you believe? Or do you believe that God punishes people like this? I believe, God, I believe there's a God that punishes people. And I believe inside of every human being, there is a rejoicing in that God, yes, Jeffrey Epstein's going to get his. And all throughout eternity, every girl he kidnapped, every girl he abused, every girl he drugged, every girl he killed, is, their faces are coming for his mind, and he's paying for all eternity. That Joseph Stalin, that every person he killed, their faces are coming for his mind. Every child they molested, every, every Taliban person who shot a little girl in the head, that they're going to pay for it for all eternity. I think that makes a whole lot more sense. And it's not because I want to believe that, because this God has revealed himself in history. But here's the thing. Next slide. These are the enemies of God, but don't think so narrow. Let's listen to what the scripture says. Next slide. You see, we were enemies of God. And God reconciled we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see, Jesus went through hell on the cross so that you won't have to. So now you have a choice. I can suffer for all I've done wrong, or I can choose to accept Jesus' suffering on my part. Let, let me illustrate it this way, okay? Um, Amanda, come on up here, and Charles, come up here. And uh, let's just say, let me pick here. I don't want to do this here. Um, so let's see. Daisy, come up here. If you don't mind me borrowing you for a second. So uh, Amanda, stand right here. And Charles, stand right here. And Daisy, stand by that door over there. Okay? And then Rick, I'm going to borrow you for a second. And, and Rick is over here. And Rick is going to be uh, Joseph Stalin. Okay? He is not near as good as those guys. I mean, Charles is a whole lot better than Joseph Stalin. Right? And we all know that Amanda is even better than Charles. And then, just for the sake of illustration, and Daisy, she's really good, because we don't know her yet. But anyway, she's really, really good, okay? But, and you say, see, Daisy could say, see, I'm not Joseph Stalin. I deserve to go to heaven, because I'm not him way over there. 
And then a man in control would say, well, maybe I'm not as good as Daisy, but you know, I'm not as bad as him. So maybe God draws the line somewhere in here. But you know where the line is drawn? It's drawn 40 billion miles that way where Jesus is standing. And so therefore, everybody in this room is in trouble. Because even though Daisy hasn't done anything bad as Joseph over there, she knows she deserves hell if she's honest about it. Thank you. Y'all can sit down. You see, let me just say something really blunt here, okay? And, and this is not just my quote, okay? I actually heard this from Tim Keller just two weeks ago. If, if you have never in your life, if you, if you just woke up and you're now listening to me, I want you to catch this one thing and take this home, okay? Forget everything else if you have to. If you have never in your life seen yourself as the enemy of God, you are not saved. That's not my opinion. That's Bible. And if you want to quote somebody who's much smarter than me, Tim Keller said the same thing. If you have never seen yourself as the enemy of God, you're not saved. When you come to the point you say, God, I have sinned against you. I have rebelled against you. I've done things in my own way. But I am sorry. I repent of my sin. And I trust Christ as my Savior. I thank you, Jesus, that you went through hell on the cross for me so I don't have to go to hell. That's when true salvation happens. And that's why, unfortunately, America is full of all kinds of people who prayed a simple prayer and, oh, I got my ticket to heaven, but hey, who cares about whatever? I'm going to live my life and do, I know these things are wrong, but hey, I'm going to do it anyway. I got my ticket to heaven. I'm not sure you do. Because if you truly saw yourself as the enemy of God and then Jesus died for you, his enemy. Now, picture this. And let's make this real. Let's say you meet someone from the Taliban and they're caught and they... the UN's tribunal plans to execute them, and you step up and say, hey, you know what? I know you're guilty of killing Afghan women and children. I will die for you. We need to see ourselves in that picture. Next slide. The last one, the God who loves Moses. Keep going. And the Lord Lord spake unto Moses that self-same day. So what same day is this? We think it might have been his birthday because he said, today I'm 120 years old. Maybe that he meant today is my age or it actually is his birthday, but today's he died. The same day, he, the same day that all this is happening, that he's preaching this sermon and teaches them this song, he says, verse 49, get thee up into the mountain Abiram. And it goes on to say, behold, the land of Canaan. I want you to look at the promised land, Moses, which I will give unto the children of Israel for a possession. Next slide. I was hoping you get Okay, and die on the mountain. Okay, seems like it's kind of rough, but you're going to climb up the mountain, you're going to die on the mountain, but here's the good news, Moses. You're going to be gathered to your people. Remember your brother Aaron that you love so much is dead? You're going to see your brother today. All your people that have died, that you loved, that have gone on before, your mom and dad, everybody, you're going to be gathered to them. Even though Moses has disobeyed, and that's why he's not going to the promised land, God still gives him the best death, burial, and resurrection all in the same day because God is compassionate and he loves Moses. Keep going. In chapter 34, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, it says, I'm going to give you a little preview. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. God prophesied it, it happened. And then God buried him in the valley of the land of Moab opposite of Beth Peor. But no one, the knows the place of his burial to this day. And to this day means the time that that the Pentateuch was written, okay? And you know what? Muslims think they know where the the burial place of Moses is, but it's it's not archaeologically backed up. 
The truth is, nobody to this day, to this day, not just that day, but to this day, knows where body of the body of Moses is. Isn't that interesting? Does that sound familiar to you? Keep going. We can't find the body of Moses because God buried him, and he buried, does such a good job burying him in a secret place, maybe so deep, whatever, that, we, that because God buried him, we can't find him. And then next slide, we can't find the body of Jesus because God raised him. You see, Jesus said, you, you think Moses is great? One who is greater than Moses is in your midst. And Jesus proved that because Moses, we can't find his body because God buried him. But Jesus, we can't find his body because God raised him. Keep going. Romans 10, 9 says, because if, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Je- that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When you say, Jesus, here's my life. I don't, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm not going to live my way. I'm not going to live by my values. I'm not going to live by my desires and my passions or what makes me feel good. But I'm going to live for you. And you make Jesus Lord. And I believe that you died on the cross and you were buried and you rose again. And that's my only hope of salvation. What does the last four words say there in green? Read it with me. You will be saved. That's how you get saved. It's not keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not being baptized. Although those things are both important. It is giving your life everything you have to Jesus Christ because he gave everything for you. Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? I want everybody to please pray earnestly right now that God would open hearts and minds and that people would be saved this morning, even people who thought they were saved and now they realize that their life doesn't show it at all. So if, you want, if you're here today and you would like to be saved, you, you, re, you see yourself as the enemy of God, but he reached out and he loves you anyway because Jesus commands you, love your enemies, right? And he's loving you right now. He died for you. If you want to be saved, you could pray a prayer something like this. And again, the prayer does not save you. It's your faith in Christ. But you could pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I deserve the cross. I deserve the crown of thorns that was in your head. I deserve the nails that were in your hands and feet. I deserve the humiliation. But you took my place, and I thank you for it. And because of that, I give everything that I am to you. Thank you for forgiving all my sins. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Um, if you uh, if you've made that decision today, man, I would love to know about it. Would you text me? This is my cell phone number right here, and um, you can t- let me know about that. I, if you're maybe not sure, we could talk even more. I'd love to talk to you on the phone or text, whatever, however you choose to communicate. And let me ask you another question. So maybe you've made that decision. You say, yeah, yeah, Gary, I got saved a few months ago, or I got saved a few years ago. My question for you also is, have you ever been scripturally baptized since? And I've made it pretty clear, baptism doesn't save you, but it is your first step of obedience. And by being scripturally baptized, there's three things that make it scriptural. Number one, you're truly saved. If someone who's not saved gets baptized, does it count? No. And then the Bible, two, it's the method. Scriptural baptism, always in the Bible, is someone standing in water, being buried by baptism to death and being raised in the newness of life. That, it's not sprinkling, it's not pouring, and other things, it's, it's scripturally with that. And then the third thing is it's by a biblical authority. If you get baptized at the, by the YMCA, they don't have the authority to baptize. Your brother-in-law doesn't have the authority to baptize. It's, Jesus gave the command to baptize to his church. And so if you've been baptized by a Bible-believing church in a scriptural way and you know you're saved. So my question is for you, have you made that decision? If you've not, then I would love to talk to you more about that. Keep going. Um, next slide. So I want you to stick around if you want to, for today. If we have an adult life group and a teen life group and lunch is served. And then there's also the newcomers luncheon as well. Okay.